What's up? Good morning. Welcome to Greenbelt Baptist Church. My name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to gather again on this Lord's Day Sunday where we can collectively, with one heart, one mind, one faith, give the best of our attention, focus, and love to Jesus Christ, to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a time where we not only worship God, but we hear from God. We hear His Word read to us and preached to us, and we respond likewise in worship of song and in prayer. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you, and one simple way we can get to know you is there's a little visitor information slip at the bottom of um, your uh, bulletin. Uh, feel free to fill that out and give it to me after the service or, or one of the ushers, um, but uh, we're glad that you are here with us. I want to begin our time by reading briefly from Psalm 107. I'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We are a hungry and longing people, and we come now this morning to be filled by the Word of God, to find satisfaction in the Son of God, and to find new life in the Spirit of God. Let's ask for his blessing now. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us another, another morning to gather in praise of you. Help us, we pray. Fill us, we pray. Satisfy our hungry souls with the good things of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, please stand this morning as we sing together from songbook number 68, O God Beyond All Praising. Songbook number 58, I greet thee, who my sure Redeemer art. I greet thee, who my sure Redeemer art. 
The notes on the page in our songbook is not the tune that we will be playing and singing, but it is a recognizable tune, so you'll be able to pick it up quickly. I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and Savior of my heart, who pain didst undergo for my poor sake. I pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. Thou art the King of mercy and of grace, reigning omnipotent in every so come, O King, and our whole being sway. Shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Thou art the and our strength receive. Comfort us by thy faith and by thy power, nor daunt our hearts when comes the trying hour. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. Make us to taste the sweet grace found in Stay in thy sweet unity. Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. Come, give us peace, make us so strong and sure that we may conquerors be and ills endure.
You may be seated. Let us pray a prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. We know our transgressions. Our sins are ever before us. Against you and you only, Lord, have we sinned. We confess that we have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, we've all been brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. And yet you, you delight in truth. You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach us wisdom even in the secret heart. So purge us, we pray, with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. And we know, Lord, that this only comes through the washing of the blood of Christ. And so wash us in Christ. And therein, Lord, let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken over conviction of sin, let those bones now rejoice. Hide your face from our sins. We pray, blot out all of our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. And we especially pray that you would cast us not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold within us a willing spirit. Father, we all too often have walked away from your presence because we delight in our sin. Forgive us, and Lord, stir our conscience, free our conscience to hate our sin. Lord, Christ will not be sweet till our sin becomes more and more bitter. And so make sin Bitter to us, we pray. And make Christ be our true and everlasting delight and satisfaction. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come now this morning to that portion in our service where we, after confessing our sin and having poked and bruised our consciences a bit, come to find satisfaction and assurance in that sign of assurance, which is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is given to the church by Christ himself as a means, by, means whereby we can eat and drink and in that action take comfort, have assurance that we are forgiven in Christ. Uh, the bread is a sign, it signifies, it points to Christ's broken body upon the cross, broken for our sin. The cup is a sign that signifies his shed blood. In both the broken body and the shed blood, that historical action that took place upon the cross was an action carried out by God, through God, for us. 
And if you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your sole satisfaction before God as forgiveness of sins, then you are indeed forgiven of sin. And if you're forgiven of sin, you've been baptized and you're part of a Bible-believing church, we welcome you to partake of this sign, this sacrament, which testifies to your forgiveness. The bread and the cup, they are not the actual body and blood of Christ. We don't think that the Lord even turns them into the body and blood of Christ. Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He will be with us one day, and this meal points us to that day. We hopefully eat and drink in anticipation of what will soon be true, we pray. But now, these are just signs that point to a spiritual reality, a more real reality of our being one with Christ. The bread is digested and becomes one with our body. The drink drinks down and becomes one with us. And just as so, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are one with our Savior. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and God the Father looks on you, he sees his Son. So we come now to the Lord's Supper with joy, with gratitude and gratefulness for who we are in Christ. I'd like to invite the deacons up now who will help distribute. And as they do, uh, you may partake individually of the bread as a sign of your individual unity with Christ. Uh, But then we'll wait together to take of the cup, which shows our unity together as a body in Christ. There are two unities there, aren't there? Our individual unity in Christ and our unity with one another. And so we confess that and we celebrate that in this supper. Let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing before we eat. Father, thank you. Thank you again for this time and for your your grace that is administered now through the Lord's Supper. And Lord, would you use it graciously? Instill within us deeper faith, assurance of faith, confidence. And Father, as, as we eat and we eat healthy things to make us strong, Lord, we pray that this supper would make us spiritually strong and that we would leave here reinvigorated. As Jonathan ate the honey from the honeycomb and his eyes were brightened, Lord, may our eyes, may our hearts, may our souls be enlightened and illuminated with the assuring faith of who we are in Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's drink now together in celebration of who Christ has made us as the body of Christ. Amen. Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, commands the church, commands every Christian to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. At least one of the categories there is that we be singing psalms. So we try as often as we can to sing actual psalms, and let's do that now, standing together to sing Psalm 139. It's in your songbook, number 42. And leave 
seated. I don't think I've hit notes that high since middle school. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's pray. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 27. Psalm 27, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strong the, the Lord is my is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. For though war arises against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the days of my trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, or false wit for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your hearts take courage, wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for allowing us to gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to worship our triune, holy God. Father, you are truly our light, our stronghold, and our salvation. Lord, do not let us be afraid, knowing that a God who is sovereign over all things and protects us and takes care of us is in control. Father, let us worship you knowing these truths. Let us sing your praises. Let us lift up your name this morning, Father. Let us seek your face daily. Father, we pray also that you teach us your ways as David had asked here in this psalm. Father, give us a desire to know your word, to hear from you directly. Father, we, like David, also look forward to seeing the goodness of our Lord face to face. Father, let us be strong. Let us wait with patience 
and with confident hope that our Savior will return. Father, we pray these things this morning for our church, but we also pray them for our friends and our brothers and sisters at Aletheia Church. We pray this morning for Pastor Rob Stevens, who has been sick and praising you, Father, that he is healing. Father, we pray that you would heal him and bring him back to preach in front of his congregation soon, that you would be watching over him as he leads and teaches the church there, and he would take great care, Father, in protecting your gospel and your word for his church. Father, we pray this morning for Keith Kaufman as he's gone to preach at Aletheia since Rob is sick. Father, we pray that your spirit be with him this morning, that you encourage him, that you lift him up, and that his words, Father, be your words to the congregation, that his preaching this morning would be edifying and sanctifying to the body, and that, Father, we would have unity in Christ with that church just by them hearing the truth of the gospel preached by one of the elders here from Greenbelt. Father, we thank you for Aletheia as our friends and having other churches here in the area that we know, know your true gospel. Father, we pray this morning for the missionaries who we love and support, Chip and Melanie Hill, as they are in Thailand and they are working, and Chip is working to oversee many missionaries in that area. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would encourage their hearts, that you would give Chip the ability to continue to lovingly teach and raise and position these missionaries to do your work. And that, Father, we know that all of our efforts in this type of work doesn't mean anything apart from your spirit. So we pray, Father, that your spirit would be working in these churches, in front of these missionaries that Chip is organizing, that your gospel would be heard and that hearts would be changed and softened, and that many would come to faith through the work that they're doing there in that area. Father, we pray this morning for our worship as we prepare to hear Pastor Unthank come preach the word of God before us. Father, would you soften our hearts and our ears? Though we know your son, Jesus Christ, Father, we are quick to harden our hearts again to your gospel, to turn ourselves away from the truth of God. So, Father, this morning, as Pastor Unthank preaches, allow this word to be effectual on our hearts. Allow it to continue to conform us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Father, let us be renewed in our spirit by hearing your word preached again this morning. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand again and sing from hymnal number 40, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. Hymn number 40. Oh, and 
enter than his gates with praise. Approach with joy his courts unto. Praise Lord and bless his name always. For it is seemly so to do. For why the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure, his truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy seated. Well, turn with me now to the very end of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 52. We come now to the very end of the book of Jeremiah. Surprisingly, it doesn't end with the words of Jeremiah at all. Jeremiah's prophecy and preaching ended in chapter 51. So actually turn back to the last chapter, chapter 51, and, and look with me as I read chapter 51, verse 64. Thus far, the words of Jeremiah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it and our time. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that you've given us. And Lord, we pray that the reading and preaching of your word would be used now to bless us, not only individually, but as a church. To build us up in faithfulness. And Lord, to lead us on as strong Christians in the ever-growing spread of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 52 begins with someone else's words. What's fascinating is that we've already read much of this before. Chapter 52 is really an expanded retelling of what we saw back in chapter 39. So, the question is, why has a later scribe and editor come and added this last chapter to Jeremiah's prophecy? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think we're given a lesson in God's judgment, but a judgment that's not without hope. Last two chapters ended with judgment on Babylon. We return now to a judgment upon Judah, but it's a judgment mixed with hope. In one sense, the ending, uh, this ending chapter is a fitting conclusion to how the whole book of Jeremiah began. Remember, God promised 
to use Jeremiah and to use his preaching to, quote, pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow. That was the thesis statement of Jeremiah. And then once all that plucking up and all that destroying had happened, God would then start the work of building up and planting. God will bring about a salvation, but he'll only do it first through judgment, which is really one of the ways you could summarize the whole Bible. If you were to ask, what's the whole Bible all about? I think you could say salvation through judgment. Think about it, the very climax of the whole Bible, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus upon the cross is God's judgment upon sinful humanity. God hated sin so much that he even killed his own son for it. But in and through that judgment comes our salvation. God loves humanity so much that he even judged his own son for our sin. Well, it's the same thing here. And in fact, if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear, I think we'll see here in Jeremiah 52 a ray of light, a ray of gospel light emanating from that very same cross upon which Jesus died. The hope of Jesus as our salvation, glimmering faintly through the darkness of this closing chapter in Jeremiah 52. This chapter moves through four stages. The first three stages showing the utter destruction and utter demolition of Judah through God's judgment. And then the last stage, we see hope, a glimmer of hope, but hope nonetheless. So, the first stage. First, we see God's judgment in a dethroned prince. A dethroned prince, verses 1 through 11. The prince was Zedekiah. And in verse 1, we see that he became king over Judah at the young age of 22, but he was not a godly king. As verse 2 tells us, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. What was the result of this evil policymaking? Verse 3, because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he, God, cast them out from his presence. Essentially, the way God brings about this judgment, this casting out, is through allowing Zedekiah to continue in his foolishness. If you remember, and we saw this back in chapter 38, the prophet Jeremiah preached and he preached and he preached to King Zedekiah. He practically begged Zedekiah to not resist Babylon. The Babylonians are coming. If you want to be in God's favor, submit to them. Well, politically speaking, that's treasonous. That's, that's insurrection talk. Submit to Babylon and let, let them rule over you and everything will be okay, Zedekiah. God will be with you and through you if you submit. Well, Zedekiah was ungodly. And ungodly people don't listen to God's word and they don't listen to God's preachers and so they do foolish things. What did Zedekiah do? Look at the end of verse 3. Starting in the new paragraph in your English Bibles probably. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. What a fool. Inevitably, the Lord used this to bring the hammer of Babylon down upon Zedekiah. Look at verses 4 through 11. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. 
And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. You could read about the distress of that in the book of Lamentations, where it says the children are shriveling up and their tongues are sticking to the roof of their mouth. Think about that, not being able to feed your kids for months at a hand. Then, verse 7, a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. You guys remember reading this before? And then, verse 11, he put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So there it is. The judgment of God against Zedekiah, once in dominion over God's people, but now a dethroned prince. In fact, he's a de-eyed and dead prince. We've read this before, almost word for word back in chapter 38, but here it is, recounted for us again. But why? Why repeat this scene and add it for us to read at the very end of the book? I think we can say one reason is that we're being reminded that God does not forget. God does not forget. God does not clear the guilty. He doesn't just merely forgive with the wave of the hand. Oh, you sinned? Okay, forget about it. God doesn't do that because he can't do that. The lesson here is that God is just. He's a righteous judge who will follow through on his word, and his word for Zedekiah was to submit to Babylon. His word said that as king of Judah, he needed to be godly and to lead the people into obedience and into trust in God, but instead he led the people into idolatry and rebellion, into trusting politics rather than God. And because Zedekiah failed to trust God, God brought judgment against him. This is God just being faithful to his word. He doesn't forget. But notice also that God's judgment against Zedekiah was also a judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. Did you notice that in the text? Look at verse 5. The city was besieged. Look at verse 6. The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Look at verse 7. Then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled and went out from the city. Do, do you see? As goes the leader, so goes the people. This is always true. This is how God has instituted society to work. As goes the father of a family, so goes the family. As goes the pastor of a church, so goes the church. As goes the leaders and governors and representatives of a nation, so goes the nation. I can't help but wonder how many people, if any, were praying to God for King Zedekiah and his holiness. You know, we don't have any passages in Jeremiah of anybody, even Jeremiah himself, praying for the kings and priests, praying for their leadership and godliness. 
That doesn't mean no one ever did, but it's significant, isn't it, that we don't see that in the text? What would have happened in Jerusalem if there was an ever-growing movement of people gathering together to pray, to pray for the king, to pray for the priests and the prophets? Let me just add this rabbit trail of an application. If you're not gathering to pray with your church for the governing authorities, you cannot complain about the governing authorities. So I'd like to warmly welcome you to Sunday Evening Church, where we often pray for things going on in our nation. Sadly, we'll never know what would happen if they did pray. So what did up did end up happening was that an ungodly king led a nation to be an ungodly people, and a godly God brought his godly judgment. He dethroned the prince. He took away the king. But we also see God took away the kingdom. God took away the kingdom. That's the next judgment in this text. The first was a dethroned prince, but now we see a desecrated palace. A desecrated palace, verses 12 through 23. Verse 12, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Here is the exact fulfillment of Jeremiah's calling, remember, to pluck up and to break down. It wasn't enough just to judge the king. The kingdom itself had to be broken down. The whole thing was rotten down to the root. It had to be burned down and leveled to nothing. The palace was desecrated. But it wasn't just the king's palace that was desecrated, was it? We also read that the greater palace... The throne room of God himself, the temple, that was also desecrated. Look at verses 17 through 23. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. Also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. What was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bulls that were under the sea and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these things were beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. Its circumference was 12 cubits, and its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. On it was a capital of bronze. The height of the one capital was five cubits, a network of pomegranates. All of bronze were around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. And there were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. Now, this is a very interesting passage. It reads like a, a, a spreadsheet of inventory. It's interesting because the author is clearly concerned with the fine details of what was there and what was taken. The inventory of what was taken is precise right on down to the very last pomegranate. 
It's interesting to me, and I was thinking about this more this morning, that the temple was meant to be a picture of Eden because Eden was the original throne room of God. And so that what you get in the building up and the construction of the temple is very much a garden-like place that you have these pillars like trees with pomegranates hanging from them and lakes, a sea basin. And just as Adam and Eve were the priests within Eden to tend to that garden, so you have Levite priests tending to that garden. What's probably being described here is another deconstruction of Eden. Just as God had kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden, so God is using Babylon to destroy the Eden of Jerusalem. The overall effect is that the temple of God is is not just being desecrated, it's being deconstructed, piece by piece, item by item. The lesson here, I think, is this. No person, no object, no building has a hold on God. God could have kept the temple from being destroyed. He could have, he could have brought judgment on the king and all the people and yet preserved his throne room, but he didn't. He let pagans come in to tear it all down and steal the items away to Babylon. No horrendous picture could be seen, more horrendous than that. Just because you have a temple doesn't mean you have God and his blessings. Just because you have a church building doesn't mean you have God. Just because you have a Bible in your house doesn't mean you have God in your house. Just because you have a cross around your neck or a Bible verse tattooed on your arm doesn't mean you have God in your heart. And sometimes, God will allow those outward things to be destroyed to wake you up and ring the alarms. Repent. Turn back to God. I think that's the lesson. If I remember correctly, the third question in the children's bulletin, the third question in the children's bulletin is, will God sometimes have his presence leave the church? Something like that. The third question is, will God's presence leave the church? The answer is oftentimes yes. Oftentimes yes. There are countless churches where they meet on Sunday morning. A Bible might even be opened up. Christ is not preached. Lives are not submitted in holiness to Christ. And so though they're doing church, though they're doing religion, God is not there. Oh, Lord, protect us from ever getting there. We've seen God's judgment in a dethroned prince. We've seen God's judgment in a desecrated palace. But lastly, we see it in a depopulated people. A depopulated people, verses 24 through 30. Verse 24, And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priests, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and seven men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary, the commander of the army, who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Here we 
see that Babylon took revenge on those people in Judah, those leaders who were a part of the royal cabinet and were part of the plot to rebel against Babylon. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just punishment of the religious and political rulers in Judah. The Babylonians wanted more. They wanted cheap labor. They wanted slaves. Look back up at verse 15 and 16. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the kings of Babylon, together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen to work the field. Jerusalem and Judah were utterly depopulated. If we take what we read here and match it with the numbers we see in 2 Kings 24, we're looking probably at a total of around 20,000 Jews taken away into captivity. This was utter destruction and an utter depopulation. A dethroned prince, a desecrated palace, and a depopulated people. Three stages of God's full and unabated judgment, and yet they all possess something of a common theme. The common theme here is the absence of God's presence. It's exactly what verse 3 says at the top of the chapter. Verse 3, I think, serves as a kind of thematic summary of what we've read. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. There's no reason to wonder why the king was killed, why the temple was destroyed, and the people taken captive. God was removing his presence from his people. Think about that. When God rescued the Jews from out of Egypt and he rubber stamped his covenant commitment to them with the presence of his glory. Right? We first see that in the tabernacle and then later in the temple where the presence of his glory fills the Holy of Holies. In scripture, one of the big themes that ties the Bible all together is this idea of God's presence. It's always the greatest blessing any person could ever know. We exist as people to know God and to be near Him. It's exactly what, what, what Phil read for us earlier this morning from Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This is what every believer longs for. To be near the Lord and to have the Lord be near to us. This is the beatific vision of which Jesus promises in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So to have the presence of God taken away. Or like Adam and Eve, to be kicked out and barred from the presence of God. This is the greatest curse, the worst judgment man could ever know. And this is what every sinner deserves. Children, the first question, the very first question in your children's bulletin asks this. What are the consequences of my sin? What are the consequences of my sin? Answer, to be cut off from God's presence. To be cut off from God's presence. 
Oh, the miserable darkness of eternity. The suffocating hopelessness of knowing you could never know the love and blessing of God's pure presence. But that's just it, isn't it? Because God is pure, then sinners cannot enter into his presence. Impurity does not and cannot commingle with the purest purity of our divine God. And God's people know this truth. All people should know this truth. This is why godly David, when he did sin, and it was impure sin at that, pleaded with the Lord, cast me not away from your presence. We prayed that this morning in our prayer of confession. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. As the people of Judah were being marched away into Babylon, being taken away from the presence of God, they should have remembered, they should have thought, all of this destruction, this being separated from God in the land, this is exactly what God promised. It was promised by God that this would happen. He said this would happen if they failed to live repentant lives in honor of God. The uh, Puritan commentator on the Bible, Matthew Henry. Many people have Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible in their bookstalls. If you don't, you should have it. This is how he ends his commentary uh, on the book of Jeremiah. He says this, No word of God shall fall to the ground, but the event will fully answer the prediction. And the unbelief of man shall not make God's threatenings any more than his promises to no effect. The justice and truth of God are here written in bloody characters. For the conviction or the confusion of all those that make a jest of God's threatenings, that is the threatenings of what he will do if people don't obey, let them not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, God's judgment should not catch anybody off guard. You shouldn't be surprised by God's judgment because God has promised that he will judge sin. And guess what? God always does what he promises. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. Children, the second question in your bulletin asks this. How do we know that God will punish our sin? How do we know that God will punish our sin? Answer, because he has said so in his word. He has said so in his word. The Bible contains many warnings about the judgment still to come. The judgment that we read here in Jeremiah 52 is just a, a minor foreshadow of a greater judgment to come. You can read about that judgment at the end of Revelation. That'll keep you up at night. It says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. The Bible promises that a day of judgment is coming when Jesus Christ will return in power and might. Hebrews 9.27 says, announces that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. At the end of your life, and we don't know when that is, at any moment we could die, we immediately stand before the judgment throne of God. It warns us that all the enemies of God will be banished from his sight and his presence forever. Matthew 25.41, what God says, he will do. So is there any hope? Honestly, how can I, a sinner, ever escape the just judgment of a good and holy God? Can I get to that judgment throw room and, and just say, uh, forgive me? All right, forget about it. No. 
God doesn't say just forget about it. How can I, a sinner, ever escape the just judgment of God? Well, I began this morning by telling you that our chapter ends with a glimmer of hope, specifically that of a hopeful prisoner. I think we find our answer there. We saw the judgment of a dethroned prince, a desecrated palace, and a depopulated people. Now we see some light in a hopeful prisoner. Look at verses 31 through 34. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. This ending is hopeful because it shows that King Jehoiakim was still alive and well after nearly four decades in prison. 37 years after arriving in Babylon, he traded in his prison clothes for royal robes. Literally, the king of Babylon spoke good things with him. He was given a seat at the king's table. Now, this is important and this is hopeful because Jehoiakim was David's rightful heir. In his messianic prophecies, Jeremiah promised that God would put a son of David back on the throne. Jeremiah 23 verse 5, Jeremiah 30 verse 8, Jeremiah 33 verses 14 through 17. The very ending of Jeremiah's book shows that the line of David would not and could not be fully extinguished. He's in a dark place, almost 40 years in prison dark, but it ends with a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope that God would send a king to save his people. The ending of Jeremiah holds the promise of a sequel. It's the final chapter of one story, but only the beginning of the next story. The, the rest of the story can be found in the New Testament gospel. Here's how the gospel of Matthew records it. Quote, After the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerub, Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Matthew directly and explicitly picks right back up where Jeremiah leaves off. This is the happy ending Jeremiah always hoped for, but he himself never got to write. And it's a happy ending everyone for everyone who believes because this Jesus who was called Christ came to save us from our sins. How can I, a hopeless sinner, escape the just wrath of God? There's your answer. Children, the very last question in your children's bulletin asks this. What ultimate hope do we have as sinners? What ultimate hope do we have as sinners? Easy answer. The best answer. The only answer. Here it is, 
Jesus Christ. He is the hope. Jesus Christ is our only hope because he lived to die. He died to take our punishment, the punishment we all rightly deserve for our sin, and he took it. And we know that the payment of his life, that it was satisfactory for paying for our sins. And do you know how we know that? Because the payment for sin is death. And Jesus did die. But he didn't stay dead. That guy, he, he got back up. He beat death. He's alive right now. Like we, we really do pray to a living Jesus. And if we put our faith in him, we have the promise of being with him. That's the blessing of the beatific vision. We will be with God by being with Jesus in heaven forever. Jeremiah was a hard book. It was hard for me to preach, and I'm pretty sure it was hard for you to hear. It was heavy and sad and a very judgment-heavy book. But it ends with a small glimmer of light about a future Messiah, a future Savior, a Davidic king who will come and save not just the people from Judah, but from every people and nation and tribe around the world. So next week, we begin to turn our attention to that Messiah as we start studying the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray for that. Let's pray now. Let's pray together a prayer of response. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time of the last several months we got to spend in this book of Jeremiah. Father, we thank you for Pastor Unthank and his faithful teaching and walking us through this book. We thank you for the blessing it is to look at a book like this written thousands of years ago, Father, but we can walk through this entire book verse by verse and see exactly what you've laid out for us to know. Father, it's been a difficult time to see your judgment continually played out through this book of Jeremiah, and that knowing you are a just God who brings judgment against the wicked, Father, it makes our hearts tremble knowing that we are also sinners and that we also deserve this judgment. But Father, we see a great blessing right in the middle of the book, knowing that your new covenant would come. And as Steve just closed us out in preaching, knowing that Jesus Christ has come, the root that you have planted, Father. Father, we pray that you would give us faith in your Son, and that we would be grafted into this root of Jesus Christ, and that we would be given new life, Father, and that we would know as Pastor Unthank just preached that when our Father looks down on us, he sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees us. That our sins can be separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you for that. Just knowing what we deserve, but knowing the grace and the mercy that you bestowed upon us in your Son. And Father, we know as Pastor Unthank preached that you will not just look away from sin, but you have poured out the sin, the judgment for the sin that we have committed on our Savior on the cross. He took on all the burdens that we had deserved. We praise you, Father, this morning for that. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray for all those among us today that do not know Christ, that do not have faith. 
Father, we pray that this word preached today would be effectual on their hearts, that by your Holy Spirit, you would prick their conscience and that they would turn in full assurance to Jesus Christ for their salvation and that we would continue as a church to be a light of your gospel and continue to preach and proclaim and protect the truth of your word. And Father, we pray all these things this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing this morning from songbook number 73, There is a Happy Land. in glory stand bright, bright as day. Oh, how they sweetly sing, worthy is our Savior King. Loud let his praises ring, praise, praise for I. Come to this happy land, come, come away. Why will you doubting stand? Why still delay? Oh, we shall happy be when from sin and sorrow free. Lord, we shall live with thee, blessed, blessed for I. Bright in that happy land beams every eye. Kept by a father's hand, love cannot die. Oh, then to glory run, be a crown and kingdom one, and bright above the sun, rain, rain for I. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look with favor on you, lifting up his countenance and giving you his peace. Amen. Amen. Our only announcement is that we have our members meeting January 30th. January 30th. Go warm, beat the snow, stay safe. There's no evening service. <laughs>